0: you can ask about Good Friday. It's the most important question you could ask about the death of Jesus. I have to tell you, it's a common question. It's a controversial question, hotly debated. And it's, it's asked by a wide variety of people. It's asked by those who are exploring the Christian faith, those who are entering the Christian faith, those who've been in the faith, even for a long time, also ask this question. And the answer to the question evokes... Very differing responses. For some, they hear the answer and they object to it. Some are offended by it. And others, when they hear the answer, are moved to worship because of it. What's the question? Well, the question actually comes to us from Jesus himself. Jesus asked the question when he was on the cross. They cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, Why? Have you forsaken me? The most important question that you could ask about the death of Jesus is why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why would God allow this? Why would God ordain for this to happen? Why did Jesus die? That's what we're looking at this morning. Knowing why Jesus died enables us to make sense of Good Friday. It helps us to understand why we call it Good Friday. Like, why why do you call it Good Friday when it's a day in which you remember that someone so precious died? Well, understanding the answer to the question why helps us to understand why it's Good Friday. And really, understanding why Jesus died takes us right to the heart of the Christian message. To understand why Jesus died opens the door to really understanding Christianity. And to do that today, what we're going to do is, is we're going to mainly focus on why Jesus died. But I, I think in order to really comprehend why he died, uh, why he died on the cross, we, ought, we need to also see what it is that happened when he died on the cross. And so we're going to read through Mark's account, the Gospel of Mark, his account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to look for this. What I'm going to show you is that there's four details in Mark's account of the death of Jesus that helps us understand why Jesus died. We'll look at what happened and then why as the main focus. So I'd like for you to to open up your Bible. If you brought a Bible with you, to open it up to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. If you just reach out probably nearby you in the back of the pew in front of you, you might see a pew Bible. You can just grab that and open it up there, page 852 and that. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can uh, get it open. I'd love for you, though, just to be able to follow along with me as we read a good portion of Mark chapter 15. And for the kids coming in, hopefully you picked up on your way in. You picked up uh, some papers. There's some some coloring you can do. I want to see some great coloring after the service, okay? Just telling you, first service kids did a great job. I saw some pretty fantastic coloring. I'd love to see that. I also want to see the notes you've taken. There's also a page of notes. So kids, you can follow along there and fill in the blanks. I would love to see that when the service ends, okay? So you come find me. You come show me your stuff. And if you're not a kid and you pick that up and you want to show me, I'll see that too. That's fine. That's no problem. I'm down with that. But uh, kids, I want you to be able to follow along and pay close attention to why is it that Jesus died? And what are these four details? And what do they teach us about the death of Jesus? And um, if you're not a kid, I expect you to pay attention to Mark chapter 15, here's the context. The context is that Jesus has been betrayed by the pretender, by the betrayer, whose name was Judas Iscariot. You say, well, you know, how did Judas go about betraying Jesus? What did he do to betray him? Well, there was these religious leaders who hated Jesus. Their hatred of Jesus was driven by jealousy of him. And Judas came along and said, how much will you give me if I help you arrest him? You see, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus and do away with him, so they, but they were looking for an opportunity to do it quietly. Judas knew the quiet places, the times and places where Jesus would go. And so he came and said, how much will you pay me if I help you? They offered him 30 pieces of silver, which is about four months wages. He agreed to that and he led this mob out to arrest Jesus. He was arrested and tried before these religious leaders, and they took him to Pilate, and this is what's happening when we begin in Mark chapter 15. Beginning at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, those are the religious leaders I was telling you about, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes, and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. Imagine just putting handcuffs on him, tying him up. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Notice it's P-I-L-A-T, not like Pilate of a plane, which is what I thought it was when I was a kid. As Pilate. looks like Pilate. Why are they going to Pilate? Well, because Pilate is a Roman governor, and he alone has the authority to execute people. So that's why they're going to Pilate. Look at verse three. And Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Like who doesn't defend themselves? Verse six, now, At the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Kind of an interesting, strange kind of tradition where a prisoner is released to the people. But this is what was going on. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Like, I mean, if you're going to release somebody, surely the person you want released is the one that I find not guilty of any crime. But look what happens. See, he perceived something, didn't he? Verse verse 10, he says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But look what happened, verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, because Pilate doesn't want a riot, if word gets back to Caesar that there's a riot in Pilate's jurisdiction, Pilate's probably going to lose his job, and maybe more than his job. If Caesar ain't happy, Pilate ain't happy, so we've got to keep Caesar happy. So what have I got to do to make this go away? What have I got to do? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, or having him severely, savagely beaten, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. Ever been spat on? It's an awful thing. Humiliating. Humiliating. They spat on him, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him, and they mocked him. They stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was entering from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So the, We can presume these were, these were people who were known to the early Christian community. They, they knew who these people were. That's why the names are being mentioned the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So he's being, at, being, being forced to carry the cross of Jesus because the other gospel writers say he was too weak to carry on. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. I've been to a place. I've been to um, Jerusalem, and just outside of what would have been the ancient city of Jerusalem. You don't know for sure, for sure, if this is where Jesus was crucified, but it's very interesting from a certain angle, there's a hillside, and from a certain angle, it looks like a skull. I've seen it. I got pictures of it. You can just Google it. Just Google Golgotha Skull Hill. It's fascinating. Was that where Jesus was crucified? I don't know. Maybe. But it's a place of the skull, Skull Hill, Golgotha. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Probably some kind of mixture to ease his pain, but he refused it. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Who's going to take his stuff? Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now understand, in the ancient world, zero hour is like six in the morning. Imagine the clock. So what's third? If zero hour is six in the morning, what's the third hour? Third hour is nine o'clock. 9 o'clock, or the first hour, first, second, third to 9 o'clock. At the third hour, they crucified him. So that was about, I don't know, maybe some of you are getting out of bed at 9. Maybe you're having breakfast at 9 or having your morning coffee or walking your dog. It was about two hours ago that he was crucified. And the inscription, verse 26, of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Aren't you glad that he didn't? Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, remember, I said there's some details that I want to show you. And beginning at verse 33, we're going to see, we're going to start to see in this next paragraph four details that I think help us to see why Jesus died. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, so what time is it? If it's the sixth hour, it's noon. 12 noon, that's the sixth hour. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour? What time is that? Three. That's right. Six hours noon, ninth hour is three. From noon to three, not midnight to 3 a.m., 12 noon to 3 p.m. And it says, there was darkness over the whole land. Isn't that strange? You would count it strange if when the service ended, you went outside and it was dark outside, wouldn't you? You might be a little freaked out, a little spooked out. You might be probably getting out Google to help to try to find some explanation of what's going on. It's very strange. Something peculiar is happening here. I think it's, I think it's instructive for us, the darkness. I read on, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, so three o'clock, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is disturbing, if not jarring. Because it it wasn't long ago, at Jesus' baptism, when a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now... This same beloved son is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's peculiar. I think it's instructive. Verse 36, and some of the, or verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at the moment Jesus died, something happens to the curtain in the temple. I think that's instructive for us. Verse 38 says, The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was a son of God. That is jarring because the centurion was not a Jew he didn't have a religious background he's the guy who's in charge of overseeing the execution and he confesses Christ that is something there's four details here that i want to examine with you that i think help us to answer the question why did jesus die four details the first one is the darkness the darkness It says in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, noon hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What do you make of that? Like, what what do you think is going on? I suppose someone could say, well, it's it's a coincidence. It's a happenstance. I just have a hard time seeing that, that in the moment the Son of God dies, there's darkness comes over the whole land. As he's hanging on a cross, that there's darkness over the whole land. It just seems... I, I don't see that as a coincidence. You might even read this and say, oh, I think it's just spiritual stuff. Like it probably wasn't actually dark. It was probably like a, a kind of spirit of darkness over the people. No, that's not what it says. It says there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You know what's really interesting is in the first century, there was a, a historian in the first century. His name was Thallus. Thallus was not a Christian. But Thallus, we have some of his writings are preserved, quoted in, in other ancient writings. And in the first century, he wrote about, pondering about, why it is on a particular day in history, there was darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day. Referring back to this, this day when Jesus died. Now you say, that is pretty interesting. I think it's fascinating to me. Now he posited, he argued that it was some kind of eclipse. There's others that say that wasn't possible. I don't know. I don't know anything about the moon and the sun and stars and stuff like that. I don't know, but I'm just telling you this because I think it's super interesting that somebody who is not a Christian, who who doesn't have a vested interest in this, we have extant writings from them talking about this day when everything went dark. I I just think that's pretty. That's pretty interesting. It's kind of neat. It's kind of cool. I don't think this is a coincidence at all. Whatever this is, whatever's going on here, it strikes me as this is a God thing. There's something that, that God is doing where there's darkness over the whole land. Maybe, maybe it wasn't an eclipse. Like maybe God ordained that there would be an eclipse. We had one a few years ago. Remember that? It's sort of like in the middle of the day. It was sort of eerily dark outside when it's the moon passing in front of the sun and and it's like you weren't remember you weren't supposed to look at it or you never see again some you probably did and you know I don't know but but that was that was a thing and it was kind of weird outside like it's kind of it's daytime but it's kind of like feels like it's nighttime but it's not and maybe that's what I don't know maybe it was super thick cloud cover I don't know but I do know that it's there's no way this is a coincidence and the intimation of the text here is that it's not a coincidence That is a God thing. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That is the ninth hour when Jesus died. So what do you suppose it means? Well, it's really interesting that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, darkness is often a symbol of sin and a symbol of God's judgment. You can see this in lots of different places, but there's one passage in particular I wanna read to you from. It's Amos chapter eight and verse nine, and the prophet said this. Now the prophet was talking about Israel, and Israel, God's old covenant people had rebelled against him, and God was gonna judge their sin. And Amos the prophet was writing about this judgment that was gonna come on the nation. But listen to the language he used to talk about God's judgment for sin. Listen to what he says. Amos eight, verse nine, it says... And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I just think that that's pretty interesting. I think that Amos is talking about things that were going to happen in the near future from his time. And I also think it was at the same time a prophecy of another judgment, a huge judgment that was going to come when Jesus died on the cross the meaning of the darkness, dear friends, I believe, is that God was judging sin. What was going on there? What was happening? Why did Jesus die? Because in that moment, God was judging sin. That's what was happening on the cross. Paul says in Galatians 3 and 13 about the death of Jesus, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, a curse is not a hex, But it's the consequences of failing to obey the sovereign king of the universe. Bible says the soul that sins shall die. Everybody has sinned. But in Jesus' death, Jesus took the judgment for our sin upon himself. That's what the darkness means. When the son of God being judged in our place on the cross, darkness is a fitting backdrop for that. That's what was happening there. That's what was going on. The meaning of the darkness was that God was judging sin. That's the first detail. It helps us understand what's going on here. Why is this happening? God is judging sin. But it also that point also helps us to understand the next detail, the significance that we see in the next one, namely the cry of Jesus from the cross. Notice verse 34, what he says. It says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. What did he cry out? What did he say? It's a quote in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 22. He's quoting scripture. The question why, though, he's not saying that he doesn't understand what's happening. I don't think that at all. I think he, he understands what's happening. In fact, he told his disciples that this would happen. Repeatedly, he told them this was gonna go on. So Jesus, when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Like he's not asking for an answer to help him comprehend to make sense of what is going on. No, instead when we hear Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is expressing his horror and his anguish at being forsaken by his father. It's like when a person is suddenly confronted with calamity, they might cry out, why? why? And they're not asking for someone to sit down with a reason six point explanation about, well, you see, this is why. No, it's from the depths of their soul out of sorrow and despair. They cry out, why? That's what's going on here. We see here the humanity of Jesus crying out in despair. Why is he, why is he so despairing? Well, because God is judging sin, and he is under the brunt and the full wrath of God's judgment. It's a horrific thing. And he cries out in anguish of soul, Why? Why have you forsaken me? You see, the meaning of the cry is that Jesus was dying for sin. God is judging sin. And in dying, Jesus is dying for sin. Not his own sin, but your sin and my sin. That's what Paul meant when he said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our failing, our sin upon himself. The meaning of the cry is that Jesus was dying for sin. And one of the most stunning things about this part of the text is what's not there. Namely, a response. It's not like earlier in Jesus' life, like at his baptism, God spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There was a voice from heaven. Heaven is silent on this day. It's not like in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted by Satan and angels came and cared for him. There was no help coming. It's not even like in Gethsemane where his disciples were nearby. I mean, they were pretty useless, they were sleeping, but they were at least nearby. But here, they've scattered, they've gone, they've fled. He's totally alone, totally alone. He's alone on the cross, and there's no answer from heaven on this occasion. God is not declaring his pleasure with his son because he's pouring out his wrath on him as his son takes the penalty for my sin and for yours. He was suffering the consequences of our sin, paying the penalty that we should have paid so that you and I don't have to pay it. He took it instead. It's like a number of years ago we had some friends visiting our place and they parked out in front of our house and in that place where we live there is a bylaw that you're you're not allowed to park overnight on the street. It's actually the law technically said you're not allowed to park in the street between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. It's just in there to stop people from permanently parking on the street I think and the parking authorities were super diligent at their job and so in the morning, our guests go out, and there's a parking ticket on their windshield. Now, we're feeling pretty bad, because we're like, we should have clued in to tell them don't park there. We should have, you know, suggested they not. We should have remembered that that was a thing. And here they are. They got a parking ticket. And it's all awkward. You know, you have company over, and something goes down. You're just like, oh, that's a bit. It's all awkward. And so we just so felt compelled. to, hear, please, please, we will pay that for you. Please give it. And like, oh, no, 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 you no, no, Please, please, please let us pay that for you. And so we did. Now, it's not an exact illustration, but the point that I'm making is that just as we paid the fine for them, it was their car, they parked there, it was their license plate on that ticket, so also spiritually, it was your offense, your name is on the docket, and your rebellion, your sin is there. And if you think, you know, I don't have iniquity, I don't have sin, just ask people who are really close to you. Ask them. Do you think I have any iniquity? (laughs) They will say yes. They will enlighten you. They will bring you back to reality. And if there's any doubt, you can just ask God, because he sees it all. But wonderfully, wonderfully, while we should have to pay the penalty for our sin, Jesus paid it for us. Hear the horror in the voice of Jesus when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. That if you are in Christ, you will never cry that out. Because He's paid, He paid it all for you. Remember a friend of mine when he gave his life to Jesus, one of the first, I think the first time I ever heard him witness to somebody else, he said something like this: He said, Hey, hey, you want to hear the best thing I've ever heard? We did the sin and Jesus took the punishment. Isn't that great? That was, I'm like, that's phenomenal witnessing. Just right out there, here it is. It's the best news I've ever heard. It is. It's really good news. What's happening here is Jesus is taking our place and on the cross, and the cry points us to that. It's an anguish of sorrow and gives us insight into the, into the horrors he saves us from. He's good. The meaning of the cry is that Jesus was dying for sin. So we've got the darkness God is judging sin. The cry, Jesus is dying for sin. Now, the third thing I want you to notice is the curtain. Do you remember that about the curtain that we read, verse 37? And Jesus uttered a loud cry. The other gospel writers say that he cried out, It is finished! He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then verse 38, notice. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, to understand here, what's this temple, what's this curtain, what's this all about? Well, the temple was the place of worship. And in Israel, in ancient Israel, it was the place where you go to worship God. And in the temple, there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. You couldn't go into the most holy place. Nobody goes in there. It, It represents, the most holy place represented the very presence of God, And there were specific parameters about worshiping in the temple, but you've got the holy place drawing near to God, the holiness of God, and the most holy place, the very presence of God. And what divided the holy place from the most holy place was a big, tall, thick curtain from the floor all the way to the ceiling. And the purpose of that curtain was to keep people out. to to segregate this off as this is the presence of God. He is here and he is holy. And sinners do not enter into the presence of the holy God because we are sinful. He is holy. Never the twain shall... And there's no going in there. You can't just stroll in. There's a barrier there. There's this curtain. Now notice, in the moment Jesus dies, what happens? This curtain that keeps us, that separates off the most holy place is torn in two. And notice the direction of it. Why does Mark tell us from top to bottom? Like, why does it even matter? It was torn Because there's significance to it. It's like, who did the tearing? It wasn't a couple of people that went in, a couple of radical disciples. Yeah, let's tear the curtain, man. That's not what happened. No, it was torn from top to bottom beyond the reach of people. You couldn't just go ahead and tear from top to bottom. It tore from top to bottom to symbolize something. God has done something here. God in Christ has made the way that sinners like you and me can come to him. We can be reconciled to him. You see, the Bible tells us that sin separates us from God. But when your sin is forgiven, when your sin is removed, when Jesus pays the penalty for your sin... The barrier is gone. The separation is removed. Isaiah says this. He says, he reminds us about this barrier. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. But then Peter says, Jesus suffered, Jesus died, that he might bring us to God. And that's the meaning of the curtain. Why does Mark tell us about this? Because he wants us to see what God in Christ is doing in this moment, making a way so that you and I can know God, we can be friends with God, we can know him now in our life and be with him forever. And that's what Jesus did. And by the way, loved ones, not by the way, it's essential to my message today. That's why Jesus died. So that you and I can be reconciled to God Jesus died to take the judgment I deserve, darkness. Jesus died for my sin, the cry. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken in that moment, being judged for sins that we committed. And he did that so that we can be reconciled to God. The curtain is torn and the way is open. Do you hear that? The way is open for you to come to God to know him, to have your sins forgiven, to have a purpose in living and a home in heaven. The curtain is open. The door is open. You have but to walk through. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we implore you or we beg you or we we plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And that's what I'm pleading with you today to do, to be reconciled with God. For you who know these things and have wandered, come home, come home. Why would you wander? The way is open, come home. For those who maybe have heard these things and have yet to step forward in faith, have yet to turn to Jesus, come to him, come to him and be satisfied and be filled and, and find your perp- the purpose you were made for in knowing God and enjoying him forever. Be reconciled to God. Trust Jesus that he can do that for you darkness, God is judging sin, the cry, Jesus is dying for sin, the curtain, we can be reconciled to God. Now, there's three details, but I told you there's four that I wanted to look at. And the fourth one, I think, is really significant for us because it shows us how we need to respond. How does God want us to respond to this message and to the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. It's really, and what he wants us to do is, you've got to see there, he wants us to respond. We've got here the confession, the confession of the centurion. He gives a response to Jesus. Notice verse 39. When the centurion who, st- who stood facing him saw that in this way he, he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. I want you to understand, dear friend, that It's important that you know these things. Like, it's important that you know that Jesus did die on the cross. It's important for you to understand the significance of his death. Vitally important. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to know these things. It's not enough even just to sit there and agree with me about these things. It's not enough just to know about Jesus and to know this story. No, loved one, you must respond to Jesus. You must respond to him. I mean, you can know that somebody's wanting to marry you. He's down on his knee asking you, will you marry me? You gotta answer. There's only two possibilities. No or yes. But you, you, you can't say nothing. It's not enough to say, well, he asked me. You, you gotta Respond. If somebody's calling you, you, you got to answer. Not not just know the phone is ringing. I mean, you could see who it is and say, "I don't want to talk to them." I, I get that. No, I don't. I'm a pastor. I don't get that. I can not ever understand that. But you, it's not enough just to say, "Oh yeah, they're calling me right now." Well, answer. Pick it up. Say, "I can't talk right now" or whatever. But respond to them. This is the, you see what I'm saying. You know these things, and that's so important. But you got to respond. Got to respond to Jesus. And the centurion shows us how. He responded in faith, believing. Look what he says. He says, truly this man was a son of God. He says that he saw how Jesus died, and he confessed, truly this man was a son of God. I wonder, you know, I wonder what, what, is, it that he, what is it that he noticed, or what is it that landed on him? I wonder if it was just the patience of Jesus, the, the quietness of Jesus in the face of accusation. Maybe it was the loud cry, it is finished. I don't know for sure. But I do know this. That when he saw Jesus that day, something happened inside of him where the eyes of his heart were opened and he saw this Jesus is who he says he is. And I believe in him. You say, how do you know that? Because what he said, truly this man was the son of God. The confession the Roman centurion is in charge of this execution and he confesses Christ. By the way, he is like the last person you would ever expect to give their life to Jesus, and this day or any day. He's, he, he's a Roman. He, like, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the Old Testament background. He can't in that moment. He doesn't have the, the teaching or the background to be able to put together. Oh, yeah, okay, so the, there's the whole sacrificial system. And now here we've got the, the sacrifice. And oh, yeah, the God and the rescuing and Passover. And oh, yeah, I can see. I put all, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't have that. He's a, Roman, a pagan Roman soldier. They're overseeing the, the, the death of people. But he sees as Jesus and he believes. He's like the last person. Let me ask you, don't name any names. Don't say it, especially if they're sitting around you. But who is in your life the last person you'd ever expect to come to Jesus? Don't say any names out loud. But just think, honestly, we've all got people who think, I mean, I know God can do anything, but I mean, I look at this person and think, um, mm, mm. that was a centurion. <laughs> Which, loved ones, ought to encourage you to pray, to evangelize, because if God can save the centurion, he can save anybody. And we see in this confession, this Roman centurion shows us what to do to trust Jesus. The confession. The confession reminds us that we must respond to Christ in faith. In other words, believing, trusting in him, believing that he died there, taking on God's judgment paying the penalty for my sin, and in his death, he alone is able to bring me to God, to reconcile me to God. I trust him to do that. I believe he can, and I believe that he will. That's the response. Now, there's all kinds of responses that people will have to Jesus. We even see it here in this story. I mean, some people, there's people today, just like there were then, responding to Jesus in the same way. Some people are like the soldiers Maybe not as brutal as the soldiers, but just as oblivious as the soldiers. Lots of people are oblivious to this. Like, it, just they just seem to miss it. Like, here is Jesus, the Son of God, right there. And they don't, they don't see it. He's just another person that they have to execute. And because of some of the backstory and what they've seen, it's someone they're going to mock and ridicule. And they just, just miss it. It doesn't land on them. Not like the centurion. Nothing doesn't land on them about the significance of Christ. And I think that's like a lot of people, maybe even some of you are listening to me today. I mean, you're tracking with me and you're being very polite and, and bearing with me and listening. But you just don't see. This is great for you, but it's not really relevant to me. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've been to church, you grew up in church, you're here today in church or watching church online. And you're just not seeing the significance of Jesus. You haven't come to a point of saying, he is precious, I must have him. Some people are like the soldiers. They just don't see it. Some are like the religious leaders and that they're self-deceived. Like the religious leaders, I mean, they saw Jesus, but they didn't think they needed him. They, they didn't think they needed a savior. They thought they were good with God. They thought it's, it's all good between me and God. it have got my upbringing, my background, my knowledge of the, of the scriptures and the good things that I've done, and I'm good. I don't need a savior. Lots of people feel like that. It's called self-righteousness, which sounds really ugly and peculiar, like you don't want it on you, but it's on more of us than we realize. When we look at this, Jesus is like, I don't really need him. All kinds of people feel that way. Lots of people call themselves spiritual, but when they hear this story, they're, they're unmoved by it. And some are even offended by the fact that we talk about it. Maybe you are today. Maybe you're just like, I hate this. I don't want to listen to this. It's offensive. Talk about Jesus. The only way. I would suggest you, you're self-deceived, I believe. Maybe that offends you. I don't mean to. It's just what I think. You think what you think about me, so let's just be on the same page on that. But some people are like the religious leaders. Some people are like Pilate. Pilate just wanted the whole thing to go away. Pilate was self-absorbed. Just let me go back to my regularly scheduled life. In fact, he even, he even the gospel writers tell us that when it came time to hand Jesus over, he had a bowl of water brought out so he could wash his hands, like, physically. This I I don't want anything to do with this. Now, if you are the person right now who are listening to me saying, when will this be over? Like, when will you stop? Like, I gave up Friday, Good Friday brunch to come and listen to this. Now it's time to stop. You've had your say, preacher. Time to move on. Jesus died. Okay, I get it. Good Friday. But lunch is coming, And I'd like you to stop. Now, maybe you're feeling overly guilty with that because that is what you're thinking. But here's the thing there's lots of people that just like, "Just, just leave me alone. Let me go back to my regularly scheduled life. Don't trouble me with the cross and death and heaven and hell. Don't bring these things around me. I don't, I like my life the way it is. Don't confuse me. Don't complicate me. Don't preach at me. Just go away and let me be. That's Pilate. Is that you? Is that you? Some are like the soldiers. Some are like the religious leaders, self-deceived. Some are like Pilate, self-absorbed. But some are like the centurion who responded in faith. He was far from perfect. He was a sinner, just like you, just like me. But something happened that day that he recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And with the limited understanding that he had, he professed faith in Jesus. That he's worthy of my trust. And he was convinced enough to say it out loud. He confessed Christ. Now, I just wonder, when you think about these different people, we've got the soldiers, the religious leaders, Pilate, the centurion. Which of these is most like you? Which of these most resonates with you? And you know, the preacher, you're like, the preacher probably wants me to say centurion. No, I want you to say what's true. Like, in all honesty, who who of these is where you are? I so long for you to be like the centurion who would trust in Jesus. And if in your heart you're like, that's what I want and I think that's where I am, maybe even for the first time, you're probably wondering, what do I do now? I want to close by telling you what God wants you to do. God wants us to respond to Jesus in these ways. He wants us to repent and he wants us to believe. To repent means I go from not trusting Jesus to putting the weight of my confidence fully on him. I go from being maybe indifferent to Jesus or Jesus sometimes, to Jesus is my everything. You say, that sounds like a big deep of faith. It's not a leap of faith when you find him worthy of your trust. But it is faith. He wants you to turn from, from going your own way to him and to believe on him, to trust him to count on him to count on him and what he's done for you on the cross as your only way to God God wants you to come to a place where if this were to happen let's say you were you were to die today I hope that doesn't happen but let's say you were and you were to stand before God and he said to you why should I let you into heaven I so want you to be in a place where you will not begin to list the things you've done and your accomplishments and all the ways you've tried, but I so plead with you and urge with you that your answer would be the only reason you should let me into heaven is because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. That's how God wants you to respond to Jesus, to trust him fully. And I would invite you today to do that, to trust him. You say, how do I do that? I think a great way to do it is just tell him. Lord, I trust you. The centurion shows us how. He says something. I think it's a great way to give expression to that faith that's in your heart now to say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. God wants us to repent. God wants us to believe. Finally, God wants us to worship. And my dear brothers and sisters, many of you have been hearing this, and this is, this is good news to you. And you're hearing this, and you're praying for people maybe in your life, and, and your, your love for the Lord is being refreshed as you see him by faith on the cross. Understand that, loved ones, that God wants you and I to respond in worship, to know him, and not only to know him, but to love him, and to live for him, to count him as most precious, to, to rise up even this morning in thanksgiving, and to honor him, to honor him with the honor that he's due. And we're gonna do that together right now in a way that he's prescribed for us, that he's given us. Jesus has prescribed for us as church to worship him through communion. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. The night before Jesus died, he instituted this for his disciples as a means of worship and of remembering what it is he did that first Good Friday. When he died on the cross. When we take this bread and drink the cup, they're symbols, they're physical, tangible symbols that point to Jesus and what he did that first Good Friday. It's also, I think, significant that we eat and drink. If you don't eat and you don't drink, like ever, you don't live. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, there's a sense in which we say, Jesus is my life. Like, my life, my eternal life is Jesus. I live because of him. And in eating this, we are proclaiming, Paul says, the death of Jesus. He is my life. He's the one that's given me life. And that's what we're going to do as we partake of these emblems. As we worship him. So I want to invite you to pray with me. And then once we have prayed, we're going to take the bread. We're going to eat it. Now I want to make sure that everybody has this. And so if anybody wants a cup and did not get one, just slip your hand up in the air. We've got ushers that are ready to hand these out to you. If you came through the side door, you wouldn't have even seen them. So you're totally, it's totally okay. We're one big family here. Put your hand up nice high in the air so we can, we want to make sure that everybody who wants this has it. And so there's a few in the room, and I'll just give a moment for them to hand that out so that everybody gets this. And as you're doing that, just keep your hand up until you get it, so the ushers know. Otherwise, they'll think their job is over and go back and sit down and leave you without. Okay. So as you're doing that, remember remember what I'm saying about the significance of this. I want you to understand if you're a guest with us today and, and you're not in a place where you're yet trusting Jesus, then you would understand when I'd ask you, I think it'd be best for you just to, to not partake of this because, because this is, it's not just a, a religious ceremony we do. No, we're saying something. Jesus died for me. He's my life. I'm trusting in him. So I don't, we don't want you to feel awkward, but it would be weird, wouldn't it, if you partake of this when you're not there with us. We're not, we don't want to fake it here. So there's nothing wrong with you saying, you know what, I'm just going to watch. That's totally fine. But if you know Jesus and you're trusting in him, then I want to invite you to worship the Lord with me through eating, and then we'll pray again, and we'll drink the cup.